Oh, hi there, club. It's me, your host, Mars. I'm glad you're here for our latest installment of Stoppage Time, the Upper 90 Club's evergreen content series that includes storytelling and interviews surrounding the Columbus crew. Let me tell you, this one is great. Ryan Bailey of the Total Soccer Show podcast joined us from his studio in Italy to share the story of his childhood club, Wimbledon FC. A story I wasn't really familiar with, but I have to say it's crazy, Uh, partly because of what transpired, but also because of all the parallels with what we all experienced firsthand with the near relocation of Columbus Crew SC and the subsequent Save the Crew movement. Ryan's got notoriety as a soccer journalist, but it was great to hear his personal experience with Wimbledon FC and how things unfolded from his perspective. So let's get to it. Stoppage time with Ryan Bailey and Wimbledon FC. Hello and welcome to the club. I'm your host, Mars, and I'm here with Ben, Mort, and Trey. This is a very special edition of the Upper 90 Club. We are joined by soccer and podcast royalty, Ryan Bailey. <laughs> Yay! Uh, from Such Exploits as uh, a contributor to The Athletic, uh, Bleacher Report, formerly the director of content for Charlotte FC when they spun up, and uh, most importantly, a contributor to Total Soccer Show, the soccer podcast. So welcome, Ryan. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, guys. It's a real pleasure to be with you today. Uh, royalty is is quite lofty. I don't know if I can quite live up to that, but I'll try my best. All right, we'll, we'll do our best to get you there. So uh, I mentioned a few of your, your accomplishments, but why don't you kind of do just a quick intro for those who may not be as familiar with you? Uh, okay, um, so I've worked most of my working career. I've worked in soccer, started out where I'm from in London, blogging. Do you remember when that was a thing? <laughs> Um, barely uh, yeah so i remember i was doing it in, I, I, did, I had a blog called the spoiler which got reasonably big and that was back in about 2006 2007 and i remember just starting to use twitter then and there was like three people on it and i was like this isn't <laughs> gonna take off why am i doing this <laughs> what is this <laughs> yeah and i should have stuck with it then instead of joining it again several years later but um basically yeah, always been in, in and around the industry i moved to the states in 2011 and um basically realized that in London there is thousands of me but in the states there were tens of me it seems so <laughs> yeah. it, it made me a little more employable Less than dozens yeah yeah <laughs> indeed indeed so I, I I've within months of arriving somehow got a, um, a gig with MLS uh, who um, combined with Google to launch a YouTube channel which was laid uh, which became kick TV um, so we launched that um, early 2012, I want to say. That ran for a few years. That was a lot of fun. And then I've just worked around a bunch of places like Bleacher Report, Yahoo Sports, uh, The Athletic. When they started their US contingent, I was man, the Man City beat writer mm-hmm. from 3,000 yeah. miles away, which was cool. Uh, now they have yeah. someone in Manchester doing it, which makes a lot more sense. But uh, <laughs> um, yeah, and then obviously for the past four years or so, I've been helping out on Total Soccer Show. Um, making the other guys look good is my job. Um, yeah. <laughs> by proxy to me not being very good. Uh, uh, I, I do it. So yeah, that's that's basically brings me up to today. Well, yeah, it sounds like it sounds like you were uh, an an early uh subscriber to a lot of those pro, you know, you describe uh, MLS and how they were spinning out new new channels, right? I mean, even if it wasn't Twitter, it sounds like you were really on the ground floor of a lot of those operations. So uh, cool position to be in. So uh, how did you become, you know, how'd you get into soccer? We all have our origin stories and I, I think we were all kind of later onset and that might be by virtue of our um, Americanism, but well, besides yeah. Mort. Right. Right. So who, yeah, we'll get into where he's <laughs> yeah, from. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll get but like, yeah. So yeah. I mean, what's your, t- tell us about how you got into soccer in general. So I think my journey into soccer is probably a little different from many of you guys because of where I'm from. And right. I, see, I always describe the UK and England as a monoculture, whereas the States is got many different time zones. What's happening in California isn't necessarily happening in New York. In the UK, there's like one set of news. Everybody knows what's happening that day. Um, the TV show that's on a certain channel that night, everyone will have watched. It's a monoculture. And as an extension of that, is soccer because basically there's one sport that dominates everything. Not like in the US where you can have a, ba- a baseball team, a basketball team, an NFL team, a soccer team. Yeah, You basically have a soccer team and 
there's other stuff, maybe you like a rugby team, but that's about it. So by virtue of being born in the UK, I think I was indoctrinated into soccer without even knowing it. But my journey, I suppose, was like with many people I know, and probably that you know as well, was through my my parents. My dad took took me to games, um, and more specifically, he took my big brother to games, and I saw those two going off every Saturday and thought, <laughs> I want a piece of that. So right. when I... I, I think it was 1993 when I started going to games regularly, and I was about nine or ten back then. I'm showing, I'm literally showing my age there. Um, but uh, we've got you beat. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's good to know. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I kind of caught the bug then and had a season ticket from then on, and never got off that train, I suppose. And so that was Wimbledon FC, yeah. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. So my my dad grew up in Wimbledon, which is an area of South London, which people will know for tennis. Uh, there's also a soccer team who, uh, a less celebrated soccer team. We were in the Premier League as inaugural members in 92 and um, decided it wasn't for us in about 99 yeah. um, and dropped out of that league. And there's a whole yeah. story story that comes after that as well as I'm sure we'll get into. Yeah, um, but most definitely. Basically, Wimbledon is a team where Fulham's down the street, Chelsea's down the street. There's a lot of teams within the catchment area who have much bigger fan bases, but we're the sort of plucky underdogs is how I would describe us. Well, and I, I know that uh, Ben reached out to you to set up this call and that he was tracking the Wimbledon FC story uh, and how there were some analogous aspects to what the crew went through. So... Um, you know, Ben, I know you have a lot of questions for Ryan. I don't want to, uh, I don't want to stand in the way. So why don't you jump in with some of the, uh, the Wimbledon focus that, that you had on your mind and we can, we can dig in. Yeah. When I was, when I was researching this stuff, um, there was just so many parallels between like what the crew went through and I kept seeing like, well, this happened because of this guy, that guy is akin to, you know, Anthony Precourt. This is, you know, Austin is very akin to Milton Keynes. And the more I dug into it, um, well, A, I found that there wasn't that much out there. Like I look on YouTube and there's, you know, two documentaries, maybe like a Copa 90 story. And then there's like a a fan base one that's an hour long. But I just kept and I read about it on the website and I just thought it was such a wonderful story. I wanted to make sure every Columbus crew person that survived the Save the Crew understood like what is going on in Wimbledon and what's currently going on in Wimbledon and why it's important. So I kind of want to start at the very beginning and I'm just going to if you could just kind of help tell the timeline and also like where you were at and how you were feeling, you know, through it, because you lived through this and I'm only just now reading about it, you know, in 2019, 2020. Right. So um, I kind of want to start off. Do you, yeah, do you have a way to kind of explain the ProRail system? So in terms of ProRail and the, and the pyramid, we call it, it's literally a pyramid. So at the very top, you've got the top division. The top four divisions in England are professional and five down to like 11 or 12, where it gets very regional at that point. Those are the semi-professional and yeah. amateur teams, essentially. So Wimbledon started out, as most teams did in England, as an amateur team in 1889, in fact. Um, and then finally made it into the league, i.e. the top four tiers in 1977. So we're talking a good, nearly a century of play before getting (laughs) into the top, uh, which, I mean, is is typical because there wasn't a professional system in 1889, to be fair. But um, so 77, Wimbledon gets into the fourth tier of the league system, and then 86, 87 made it to the top flight. So that's, what's that? That's nine or 10 seasons from going from the fourth tier to the top tier, which I think very few teams have done it that quickly. Um, I mean, maybe Bournemouth, I think, is an example. I'm just thinking off the top of my head. Blackburn, maybe, at about the same time too. Blackburn? Yeah, that's yeah, that's quite that's quite possible. Yeah, um, but obviously with different financial yes. backing um, <laughs> yeah. with those instances. Whereas Wimbledon, as I mentioned, plucky underdog with like two quarters to rub together. Basically, it's amazing what a massive cash infusion will do to the quality of a team. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, having a very very rich owner can do wonderful yeah. things for your health uh, yeah. as a soccer team, definitely. Uh-huh. Which is something that um, Wimbledon have never had the privilege of, unfortunately. But so yeah, the team gets into. In 80, 1986 is finally in the top division. It's called Division One at that point before it's rebranded or replaced as the Premier League. Yeah. So it's Division One, Division Two, II, Division Three, II, Division Four. Uh, the biggest team in that league is a team called Liverpool, who are champions of Europe many times in the 1980s. Uh, in 
In 87-88, so that's Wimbledon's second season in the top flight, they won the league for the 17th time. This is before Man United mm. were dominant. Right. Yeah, whenever Ferguson was hired, right? That's cr- correct. Yeah, correct. Um, so Liverpool, having won the league for the 17th time at the end of the 1988 season, go into the FA Cup, the curtain closer of the English uh, League Six mm-hmm. season, and they, they get to play Wimbledon, who somehow got through the FA Cup and played X amount of games to get to the final against incredible odds. And by the way, Wimbledon finished sixth in Division One that season in their first, in their second season in mm. 1988. Uh, huh. Which once again for a team who had whose stadium hold a few thousand people and is in a catchment area where Chelsea are down the road pulling ten times as much. Very very impressive. So Liverpool go to um, Wembley for the FA Cup final in 1988 in May 1988, thinking, what's it going to be? 6-0, 7-0? This is going to be yeah, a walkover. Yeah. This team is tiny. We are the powerhouse of Europe. We are going to do this. And they lose. They lose 1-0 <laughs> to Wimbledon. And it's the you know, it still awesome. remains the biggest, uh, the high point of the club, despite it being, oh boy, 30-something years ago, yeah, which yeah. is kind of depressing. I, I unfortunately didn't go to the game because I was like six or something. Um, my brother and my dad went and talk about it a lot still oh wow you're i didn't realize you they went yeah oh yeah my whole family went because it's, it's basically the baileys are wimbledon fans so actually this past uh christmas the, the boxing day the day after christmas is a traditional soccer um day in mm-hmm. in england and, and in the uk in fact um and i was back in the uk for that and my entire like bailey family was like 20 of us all went to this game so it's super special and it's got it's for me, soccer is very intrinsically related to family. As I mentioned before, my dad was the first one who took me. It was very much a family affair to meet up with family and so yeah. on. So I very much um, equate, um, not quite, but I, I keep the women's story in my mind with my with my family as well, if that makes sense. I'm rambling, but the point is, in 1988, Wimbledon no, no, no. won the FA Cup. It was very, very special. And then continued to be this underdog that got under the skin of bigger teams consistently for the next decade or so when the Premier League started as well. With the crazy gang, right? The crazy gang, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to talk about the crazy gang because I guess what I heard was, you know, in 88, before they were going to play Liverpool the night before, they went to the, you know, the famous Wimbledon bar and got like hammered and there's like pictures of them just like partying, like we're going to lose. It doesn't even matter. And they're part of this, you know, the crazy gang. I, I don't know. Why were they called the crazy gang? Because uh, they were a bit crazy, I think is the uh, okay. is, yeah, is the TLDR of that one. But you know, it was it was a team with a lot of personality. A team. Sorry, that sounded rude, but no, that's, no, that's, no, that's, no, that's no, basically no. what it is. Um, rudeness is welcome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So players like Vinnie Jones, who you will have heard of, who became a Hollywood star afterwards. Players like John Fashnu, big striker, quite intimidating. Many of these players who form the the spine of this team. There's stories of. Um, Teams coming to Plough Lane, the old Plough Lane Stadium, which I mentioned only held a few thousand people, um, not not a salubrious uh, uh, venue in any way. And you get teams like Liverpool and Manchester United turning up, and they're in the tunnel, and Vinnie Jones and John Fashnu walking up and down, meeting eyes with every single player and go, yeah, we're going to do these today. We're going to do this. <laughs> and the away dressing room famously didn't have hot water and it was gross. So there's lots of this kind of intimidation factors going on. And then in the, sort of in the early 90s and mid 90s, like there was a season where every player shaved their head before the opening game. And I, I remember it. I was there. there was a ge- it was against Liverpool again. There was a game uh, in the opening game of the season. Uh, every player had a shaved head. One player, uh, Andy Thorne, who was a left back, got sent off incorrectly because he was misidentified by the referee because everybody oh, had a shaved hilarious. head. Wrong player got sent <laughs> off. And also, like when we first arrived at the stadium that day, the grass. This was at Selhurst Park, uh, Crystal Palace's ground, when we yeah, subsequently yeah. Right. moved there. Yeah, the grass was like half a half inch longer than it we'd ever seen it and like you're watching in the them um warming up before the game and like the ball's like halfway in the grass here <laughs> and liverpool being the passing team who always had the ball on the floor this is back before every team was technical and did that yeah uh, and wimbledon being the team who tended to play the ball in the air up to the big man um somehow they got away with having the grass at a ridiculous level and Wimbledon won that day because Liverpool had no speed on the ball. So there's lots of like cheeky stuff like that and um, there's stories at the at the uh, training of when a new player turned up, like his clothes would be burned while he was training and lots Dang. of stuff which sounds borderline bullying these days and probably wouldn't fly. Yeah. But was just, just good old-fashioned crazy. Yeah, yeah. 
some some old fashioned boys. Yeah, it's like a fraternity kind of, for better or for worse. <laughs> yeah, very, it had a fraternity vibe. I think is a good way. Well, and you you said you know going to games with family and the the old field that you I think was pretty pretty small, right? Couple few thousand seats, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. The whole fan base must have been like a family, right? You must know everybody at every game, right? I, I think to a certain extent, like I always know the people who sat in the seats around us, which I'm probably sure you guys do at the, sure. uh, the crew as yeah. well. But I mean, there's, there's certain characters who, you know, um, I suppose yeah. being a small club, there's yeah. like with, with a relatively, even in the, in the early days of having online forums when they were very basic and looked like they were from like Alta Vista or something. Um, there's certain names that come up yeah. there who you recognize from yeah. games and such. Yeah. It's a small community, I suppose. But that's typically how it is over there. So that, you know, you're, your team that you follow is like where you live, where you're from, because everything's kind of on top of itself where, you know, the States are way different where, you know, we live in Columbus, so that's our team, but Mm -hmm. it's, you know, if, when there wasn't a team, you know, who did you follow? And like that type of thing, it's, I I just think it's like a little bit different. So in 88, they won the FA cup. They're in the top flight. Everything's going great. Um, And the parallel to that is uh, the crew has always seemed to hit above, like hit above its weight. Like, we're not the favorites. We don't get the big names. We're always kind of the underdog for the most part, but we have done really well. So it just seems like it's nice to see, like, an underdog team, especially when they were building the new stadiums. Like, we had our old stadium, and I know a lot of this, and we'll get into Plow Lane, how that whole, you know, you guys had an old stadium. And then in 88, you won. In 89, the Hillsborough happened. And then the, was it the Taylor Report? came yeah. out there was like it was a, a stadium there was a incident where people got crushed is that right yeah so I, I was i was pretty young when it happened so i don't i didn't follow the news coverage i can vaguely remember sure. the news reports that like that evening when it when it happened like yeah. those kind of things i remember watching the f1 race when Ayrton senna died i don't know if you know follow f1 at all but there's there's mm-hmm. sort of those kind of moments that stick in your in your mind in your in your formative years i think and that was one of them i suppose but um yeah that that disaster where 97 um Liverpool fans um um, tragically passed away, led to the Taylor Report, as you mentioned, which recommended that all top-flight stadiums be all-seater. So Hillsborough and many other stadiums uh, were were stands. So you you stood up, and there wasn't even in many of them railings. So it was easy to have for for a, for a push to happen and, and things to pile up at the front. So it wasn't very safe, essentially. Yeah. And those recommendations were made, and all Premier League stadiums were required to have seats. Some of them took a longer than others. Like I still remember going to Fulham in, in the late nineties, and one of their stands was still all standing, but they got dispensation for various reasons. Um, but generally, this was this was um, uh, implemented throughout England, and was cited by the owner of Wimbledon at the time, a gentleman called Sam Hammam, who went on to own Cardiff as well, a Lebanese businessman who was a bit of a character in his own right, very appropriate for the crazy gang, for the crazy things that he did. For example, um, he makes new players go to his local favorite Lebanese restaurant and eat a sheep's testicle as one of their Bring that um, back. initiations, which once again, doesn't, it's, it's, it doesn't sound very 2023, but um, yeah. <laughs> another one of those things that is in the law of the club. But he used that as um, to say that plow lane is too small. We can't redevelop it. We got to move on. We'll, we'll tell you what we'll do. We'll move to Selhurst park a few miles away where crystal palace play. We'll ground share with them for a few years while we either, figure out how to redevelop the site or we um, uh, we find a new site. And this is, this was relatively common around this time because Cholton, another South London team, also ground shared with Crystal Palace earlier, but they moved back to the stadium when they did redevelop it. Um, Q, you know, various QPR have moved around and stuff like that. So it wasn't uncommon and we, we were like, okay, this is this is for the greater good. We will we'll, we'll move to Selhurst Park and they'll redevelop Plough Lane for us. It's going to be great. But we never moved back to that site, obviously. Yeah. You know, the tragedy happened in 89. They moved the team. You guys played at, you know, Palace's place. And I think over time, you guys started to see like, wait a minute. I think something is a little amiss here. Like they're not really trying to keep the club, you know, in Merton, in Wimbledon. Like 
something is going on behind the scenes. So I think in what I've read is like less and less people started showing up to games. There was mm-hmm. rumors that, you know, there is somebody out there that was trying to poach a team. They're trying to get maybe maybe QPR or like you say, Crystal Palace. And it just so happened that when they were looking, uh, Wimbledon was available because they didn't have, yeah. you know, a place to play. You know, there was talks of going to Dublin. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. Which is bonkers to me. If you could speak to that, that's... Yeah, of course. Yeah. So as you mentioned there, Wimbledon moved to Selhurst Park, which is in in the grand scheme of things, it's not a great distance, but there's... Sure. In terms of London soccer, there's it's a big distance. Right. Uh, the team was no longer in its community. So as you say, fewer people showed up and it wasn't a huge fan base to start with. So I think that's one of the reasons the club became easy pickings for unscrupulous ownership who wanted to make money there. So Sam Hamam, the aforementioned Lebanese businessman, um, I think it was him or either the the, um, owners, the Norwegian owners he sold to um, who owned the club Molde, where Ole Gunnar Solskjaer came from and had his formative years and managed as well. Um, One of those ownership groups, I forget which, I should have done my research, um, sold the original Plough Lane site to a supermarket. Correct. Mm. So that was off the table. And it's now actually an apartment blocks. There was never a supermarket developed. It's actually apartment blocks if you go there now. They call it Plough Lane. The sweets at Plough Lane. Did they like? Did they try to squeeze <laughs> so some funny kind enough, of nostalgia the, the, out of it? The buildings, um, the blocks are named after different legendary players. Okay. Enough, <laughs> well, of, they did uh, that. No, they did. Great. I'm surprised they They're did. Capitalism. Yeah. 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 So th- this the team pretty much became homeless because had nowhere to go back to. So that's when the things like the Dublin thing. Um, turned up. And I read, a, there was a feature in The Athletic not that long ago about how incredibly close the team was to moving to Dublin, which- They said it was is, so close. Yeah. It's not in the UK. It's a different country. Yeah, it's I quite know. far away. There's no Premier League teams in Dublin. <laughs> right. So there no. was talks of how they would, for the first few years, fly Wimbledon fans out to watch this as their home team. And they'll, you know, to be fair, if you're um, if you're an away fan, if you're a Newcastle fan, if you're, I don't know, a Leicester fan- oh, a weekend in Dublin to go see a team. We can go hang out in Dublin for the weekend and get a game in. Yeah. It sounds like a really good proposition for an away fan and maybe it would have worked, but obviously it's not the way franchising doesn't happen. It's only happened once in English soccer and it won't happen again. Yeah. Um, it, it basically, uh, so that was floated around as an idea. There was various, um, even, I think, I think even combining with Queens Park Rangers was floated as an idea as in yep. like uh, bringing the clubs together. There was a lot of nonsense like that, which um, made those few years of attending games not very fun, I would say. And then when the news that the, the the owners who by that point were the Norwegians who implemented a chairman who's a bit of a fall guy called Charles Koppel to lead this charge towards Milton Keynes, which is about 60 miles from London, which once again, you know, you probably drive for a stake for 60 miles. That's not a big deal in, in terms of the American landscape. But there's a lot of yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of clubs in those 60 miles and it's just a completely inappropriate thing to have, for, to have happened. Um, so it was really hard going to games because you knew every time you showed up at a home game, there'd be protests. Yeah. It would be my dad and my brother being really upset. And we sat quite near the dugouts and the, where, where the, near the halfway line and just, you know, abuse, rightfully earned abuse being, um, uh, launched at the executives and the owners who were there protests at every game, you know, people not turning up or facing backwards for the entire game and yeah. a real, real negative air. And the whole experience was very unpleasant. And then, I mean, I'm, I'm jumping ahead in the story, but when it finally happened and the team moved, I just, I fell out of love with the game. It, mm. it, it came to the point, it was about when I went to college anyway. And I don't think I watched soccer for like a couple of years. I was like, I don't like this anymore. This has been so painful. I'm going to yeah. do something else. <laughs> and I, of course I got drawn back in because that's why I'm here today. But it was it was such an, um, I can't even equate it to anything. It's not like, you know, for soccer fans, there are hard times when your team gets relegated, when you have a crushing defeat, when you know, obviously what, what the crew have been through as well. And you, you can got some, some sympathy there, but yeah. to actually have your team literally ripped away like that and to, for it to actually happen, yeah. it was heartbreaking. And they, and they did move. 60 miles uh and when when was that 2000 so 2003 is when it kind of happened but 2002 is when it kind of went through and basically the the owners of the club and this has all come out and it's all documented um 
ran a negative PR campaign in the Wimbledon community. So they went door to door and said, this is why you don't want a soccer team on your doorstep. When you go to those council meetings, you vote against it. This is literally documented. The actual club doing this, they didn't want to move back to Wimbledon that much that they they basically influenced the community and the council not to do it. Um, so That's appalling. so interesting. Yeah. Was this yeah. Norwegian owners that did this? Yes, yes. I mean, they are they are at a distance. They're not attending every game. As I say, the full guy was the chairman who was basically the man on the ground implementing this um, debacle. Yeah, huh. it was Boy. actually well documented in Norway too, some of the things going on. Yeah, they, Mort's from Norway. He wanted you guys ah. to go. So they didn't get, they don't get a whole lot of, uh, you know, good press in Norway either at the time for some of the things we were doing. On top of that, they hired... Uh, Egil Olsen to really tear your team apart yeah. too because he didn't do much good in, in club in club soccer. So that's Chris. Egil Olsen, like a, a legend of Norwegian football. Drillo, I think Drillo? it means Wellington boots. Yeah, Drillo, because he, he always wore Wellington boots, like the big rubber boots. Um, but did very well with Norway, particularly in the mid-90s. And he was brought in by the owners uh, as like, oh, he, he'll do things differently, where he had a very specific style of play. The Christmas tree formation, 5-4-1, yeah. Yeah. getting up to the big man. Um <laughs> And it didn't gel. And that was our mm. final season in the Premier League when he came in, basically. It was the beginning of the end. Yeah. And also, we we broke our transfer record by like doubling it for £8 million for John Hartson, who was a striker at the time, which £8 million sounds so quaint right now. <laughs> yeah, but it was, it was, you know, a massive record for the team at the time and not a bad figure for the Premier League at the time. Yeah. But that not working out and having Olsen come in and not working out was was uh, the, a couple of killer blows for the Premier League campaign there. Well, I'd like to ask, actually, it was um, the two Norwegian owners, they're quite, are they, were they and are they kind of celebrities in Norway? And I think they got in some trouble with the law at some yeah, point Yeah, there, well, right? there's something going on now. I haven't been too much in the details, but there is some, uh, some, some things that are in the works right now. They're still the owners of Molde, as you said, and, but they're like, they've always been celebrity billionaires, in Norway, they, they used to do all kinds of offshore, like boat racing and all kinds of things and hanging out in the Saudis. And offshore boat racing? That Whoa. is the most billionaire thing I've ever heard. Yeah, power boats. They're like these crazy boats that can flip like very easily. Yeah, so, so yeah, they, they, they've been under some some uh, scrutiny of, of late, and I'm sure like every other rich people, they have some uh, definitely some dirt. Um, my other Norwegian connection is Ivan uh, Leonardsen's, which did not fit in yeah. with the crazy bunch at all because he was maybe the most boring and quiet person. But he was a great player that also went to play for Liverpool. He was my favorite player. I had Leonardsen on my shirt. And back then, you had to pay per letter when you got the shirt number. <laughs> oh, man. Leonardsen, it basically, as a kid, it went all across my shoulders and around the front. Uh, so it was a big investment for me. Luckily, it was only a single digit number. He was number seven. But he was my favorite player. He was wonderful. He went to, as you say, more. he went to Liverpool and then he went to Tottenham afterwards as yeah. well. So he was, he was a a big fan favorite Run, running running yeah. running machine but i remember that there was some interviews with um oh, oh of course now it stands still for me the uh the crazy head of the carices uh how boring he was <laughs> he thought he was so boring yeah i could believe that but um uh, get, getting back to the to the moving story so basically there was all this negative pr campaign by the club and they basically influenced the local community not to take the team back at the time which, with hindsight, the team is back, but that's that we're getting later into the story there. But um, they, they, it went down to an arbitration panel. The FA, the Football Association of England, couldn't decide for some bizarre reason whether this should happen or not. So it went down to like an independent arbitration panel, a three-person panel. Um, and incredibly, it went through the... Um, it was the, the line was it was saving the club because it would go bust without What a it. joke. But obviously through design because they designed it. So exactly. It, it could be the only option. So pretty terrible. And the way it panned out, Ben, was the when the actual day the pa- panel was announced, I can remember it because I, I used to work in a store near where, where, I, um, where I grew up and I can remember had my break on the store, I found out that it, it happened, the death knell had happened. Yeah. Um, it was the same day that David Beckham broke his metatarsal before the 2002 World Cup. Mm -hmm. So every newspaper runs with David Beckham for all of its (laughs) back pages. And this is basically pre-internet at this time. So that dominates. And Little Wimbledon, who don't have a huge fan base, kind of, they timed it perfectly in, in terms of it getting swept under the rug there. And something else I'll say, by the way, is I don't think this ever would happen today. 
because of the internet. Because back then in the pre-internet day, there was no campaigning like you do right now. Like yeah. M- Millwall, uh, a year or two ago, they were threatened to move out of their home, another South London club called Millwall. And basically, a couple of online campaigns quashed it within a week or so. And, you know, same thing for the crew, I'm sure, without the the way that this US soccer community came together, not just the Ohio community came together, that had a huge impact. And because Wimbledon didn't have that, we didn't have the support. I mean, it's for soccer fans, it's a very simple thing. No, they should not have been moved, this team. But because there wasn't an online, uh, you know, movement to get behind it, just happened. I cannot believe how many similarities there are in these stories as you're describing it. Like I'm not big on trigger warnings, but like I'm, (laughs) I'm feeling shaken up over here. Yeah. (laughs) And I was just like, I need to throw something. (laughs) Everything was pointing toward this team going away and, and the, the community support and getting it on the radar of, of the people who could slow things down and, and, and change the course for the crew was, um, it was crazy. It was such a wild ride. I think it's crazy that they went door to door. That's essentially yeah. like a, you know, like an online tweet campaign. Right. Of like this is why you should move. Yeah. What, what's crazy is the parallel to that is there was documentation that Anthony Precourt was not spending money on any advertising. Yeah, not doing like any billboards, mm-hmm. any audio, nothing. Like his outgoing expense to bring people in was at a zero. I mean, we always said you know Ohio State University is like one of the largest universities in the world and why aren't we targeting that that's like there you can walk to old crew stadium from from there there are like 20,000 seats in that stadium and we never cracked 14,000 in a regular season game or even it was just like even more so is the fact that he at the end was backing up the alliance to get into that stadium so much that when we did have 15,000 it still said 10,000 at kickoff because people couldn't get in you couldn't even get in yeah yeah, he, yeah, he closed the front gate so only you could go on one side. So any any televised game, he would he would make sure that there was nobody in the stands at the beginning. Like just sinister, sinister stuff like that. An- another thing I almost forgot, they falsified attendance records uh, for Wimbledon yeah. during that period as well. So <laughs> yep. they'd say yep. that Jeez. like 400 people showed up and I was like, there's at least 5,000 people here. Right, and- yeah. They could get away with it because it was their records. So. Yeah, and they were saying they were like, "We can't, we can't justify." And that was the main thing is they kept saying we couldn't find a stadium, which is the whole plow lane thing. And you know, you guys. So basically, in '89, you moved, and then you never got it back. I mean, they left in 2002. So yep. I mean, that I can't imagine going somewhere else for you know watching your team for like a decade. That just well, so, yeah. So how does ugh. it come back around? Um, well. Immediately in 2002, after the announcement was made, and I, as I say, I, I withdrew a little bit at this point because I, yeah. I just found the whole thing very upsetting. And it sounds a bit precious to say, oh, my football team upset me, but it was we get it. a oh, nasty yeah. experience. We're here for you, right? Yeah, thank you. Oh, yeah. I appreciate that. I thought you would be. <laughs> um, but the fans, I, I think there was, there was a feeling of we weren't able to save this. And there was, there was a great sadness about that. But also like, okay, what's next? So... Within days, or maybe even the next day of that announcement, I think it was that night. From what I've read, okay, at, the, at that um, the great uh, Fox and Grapes bar, the Fox and Grapes, which is yeah. a, in, on, near Wimbledon Common, which is where the original team in eighteen eighty nine was partied. Oh, there man. you go. Nice narrative. Um, so fans, love a group, a group oh, of prominent it. fans. This is a move. I have a how the fact that they haven't come to you for like a script for like Netflix. I mean, I have. Four seasons easy on this entire. Thing. I think it's. I think it's just brilliant. I did hear crazy. that um, John Green was working on something because John Green oh, has kind of adopted us. The uh, right, the, yeah. the, the guy that wrote the book that has yeah. his name in the stands. I don't yeah. know. So he it. he's always wearing our merch and stuff, and he donates one of from one of his channels. He donates the the pro- proceeds to us. Yeah, he yeah. plays FIFA as Wimbledon, and yeah. then all the donations go to Wimbledon. That guy seems like a saint. I think that guy seems pretty cool. Anyway, sorry, yeah. we got derailed. Yeah, I'll, I, as an aside, he is a stand-up dude. I, he, one of his movies, I think it was The Fault in Our Stars, they filmed it in Carolina, and they were doing shoots in Charlotte while I was there. I wasn't there this day, but he went to a bar called Hooligans, which is like the bar in Charlotte where everyone watches soccer, just quietly in the corner, had his baseball cap on. I don't think he was super recognizable at the time. No. Um, but like, I think someone knew it was him. 
Um, he was watching a Liverpool game because I think he, he likes Liverpool as well. And apparently he just very subtly, quietly left but paid everyone's tab in the bar. Um, but like, didn't make a big deal. Like, hey, I'm the guy who's paid yeah. your tab. He just did it and left. And like, it's, it was cool. Yeah, he's, he's, he cool. seems like a very good yeah. dude. Anyway, that was an aside. Um, I forgot where I was. Where I was. Oh, yeah. So the day a uh, matter of hours after this announcement was made in this pub, a few Wimbledon fans get together and say, "We should. We, you know, we rose like a phoenix from the ashes before. You know, let's do it again. We went from the very bottom to the very top." Why don't we do it again? We've experienced bad ownership. Why don't we not have owners? Why don't we be the owners? Mm, yeah. Why don't we have a completely new model, a fan-owned club? And it happened then. And it's in 2003, 2000, uh, so yeah, the following season, AFC Wimbledon was born. And this is a fan-owned model. So I am a part owner of the club by virtue that I was there on the ground. There, It's basically, it's complicated legal stuff, but... The club is owned by the Don's Trust, and I'm a trust member. I have shares in that. Yep. The club will, it's written in the covenant of the club that fans will always own a majority ownership, and they own 75% at the moment. Had to take. Yeah, 75%. 75. So it, took, it was much higher, but to fund the new stadium project, um, needed to take some outside investment. But there will never be, never relinquish control from the fan. It's basically in the covenant of the club. And that will have its limiting factors because it means we're never going to be a behemoth, a Man United, yeah. a Liverpool under that model. It's very unlikely. Yeah. But hey, we are a fairy tale club. We've done it before. Rose to the very top and beat the top teams um, in their own backyards years ago and kind of have started climbing again. So we started out in 2003 in the ninth tier of soccer in England and started basically, we're in a unique position because for years we had the least fans in the leagues and then we had the most at these lower levels where it was kind of regional, right. started climbing up and up and we were the big team. It was like, oh, this is weird. We're kind of we're the, the team that no other team likes because we're bigger than them. We used to be the team that everyone thought was their second favorite team because they felt for us. Mm-hmm. There were stories of like the, going to the away games and it was just packed with Wimbledon fans and there was like 30 fans for the other team. And like they like you guys yeah. would travel and it's just seeing the videos are like so it's so cool. Yeah, so go, going to games in a sort of 2004, 2005, around that time, you'd be like sitting on like bales of hay, whereas you used to be in a, in a stadium and stuff. It was quite humbling, but very cool because it didn't really matter that we weren't in the Premier League. It didn't matter, and it still doesn't today because it was ours. Yeah. This was our club, which we started. And the, the immense pride from that, I, I, I can't really describe it. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I didn't do anything. I, I don't pick the team or make any technical decisions, but knowing that I am part of this, is really, really special. And watching this team climb from the ninth tier, it took nine years to go from the bottom to the, to the Football League, which was League 2, the fourth, the fourth um, yeah. tier. Mm-hmm. So that happened in 2011, um, getting to it back into the league. And I was there, I was one of my best days of my life being there, um, winning the playoff to get into the Football League once again. It was at uh, Manchester City Stadium. Um, and we brought... A few thousand fans. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. And that went into nice. like a penalty shootout, right? Was that Luton it did. Town? Yeah. It was against Luton. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, who are a kind of a London team on the north side of London. They're all London. Um, penalty shootout. Couldn't have been more dramatic. But yeah, scored a winning yeah. penalty to go through and qualify for the league. And just, it felt like an incredible journey. And I often think to myself, would I have preferred it if none of the Wimbledon FC stuff happened and didn't go through all that pain and heartache? And we carried on, and maybe we're at the same level now. Maybe we're in League One or League Two because of the nature and the size of our club. Would I have preferred that, or would I have preferred the journey we've had? The rise, the fall, the heartbreak, but then the climb with our community, with my friends and family, getting back up there again and having a club which is literally ours. Yeah. And I have to say, I think I'd choose the latter. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, and and it's so it's it, with soccer, I mean, especially being in America and like trying to explain patience to fans of other sports, you know, like how things take a little longer. And you talk about the, the, the drama of a shootout and the power of, of a kick in a moment, right? And contrast that with what you said earlier about taking 100 years to go from <laughs> the bottom to the top, right? And I, it's just, it's so awesome to spend time with a club and gain that perspective and even know that, you know, beyond yourself, it can continue to grow, right? And and you're seeing that happen again 
Um, that's an awesome story. Yeah. Yeah. And the other, uh, there's a bunch of other tidbits, but one is, uh, so Wimbledon was able in nine years to go back to the fourth tier. But at one point, the team that moved to Milton Keynes, you, Wimbledon was able to surpass. So they went to like, I believe the, what the third tier mm. and then, yeah. uh, Milton was in the fourth. So there was a time where literally it took you nine years to get back to the, you know, yeah. the soccer league. And then you get to jump them and you're better than them. It's it's weird because I don't like to gloat on the misfortune of others, but I, th- I make an exception for them because I don't <laughs> recognize them as a viable entity. Yeah, basically. exactly. Austin FC. Yeah, Austin. Yeah, it's Austin. That was complete yeah. vindication of the project. Right. That was, we are now above you in the league system. You are the franchise that moved away to Milton Keynes. You are now below us in the league system. You have failed because we've overtaken you and we started from the bottom from scratch you're a failure uh-huh. we've done it so it was it was a really great feeling to have that and it's weird. i've never i've never been to see that team play um when we've played them and i won't go to their stadium no i, I barely i try not to go to the city but it's it, it's weird because you know if you're a if you're a tottenham fan oh i hate arsenal you know there's there's that kind of hatred but then there's when that team was formerly your team who'd been moved away. It's, it's a different feeling. I just don't, I feel nothing because yeah. I don't recognize them. It's got to be different. I'm, I'm the, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. got to be a completely different feeling. Like in sports, I don't, I just don't know besides, because we also had Cleveland that moved to Baltimore and, right. you know, American football. And then, you know, Cleveland came back. So the hatred for Baltimore for my friends in Cleveland is palpable. Like, that makes sense that I'm like, cool. Yeah. You know, me being a Spurs fan, I'm like, I don't like Arsenal, but I have friends that are Arsenal and I'm not, you know, Arsenal fans and I don't like want to fight them or <laughs> anything like that. But you're, you know, the, the Wimbledon and the MK stuff and the fact that they even are called Don's like I, I pictured Austin calling themselves the Austin crew and I got so mad. <laughs> I like yelled at my kids. I'm like, I don't know. And they're like, what happened? I'm like, yeah, I just thought about like them taking our name, the crew, like the Austin crew. Ugh. So that's the whole thing. When when they were trying to um, um, get Wimbledon fans on side with this move to Milton Keynes, I've still got it. There's a brochure they sent to everybody. It said it was called something like Wimbledon FC, a unique solution. <laughs> and the, prom- the promise was that this made, that the club yeah. made. Lobotomy. Um, <laughs> in this brochure, it, it made promises that the club would never change its name. It would never change its colors. It would name all the stands after Wimbledon legends. It would... It would keep all of its Wimbledon heritage. And within a couple of seasons, they changed their colors. They changed their name. They did none of the things they were going to do. And we, we were glad. We didn't want anything to do with them. Yeah, totally. So it was a good thing. But it, it just, oh, that was, I've, I've still got this document. It, it is insane to look at that now. And ugh, very dirty, very dirty. So so what's next for AFC Wimbledon? Um, so we actually, we were, we got up to League One in 2016, which is the third tier. And have now um, this season, unfortunately, dropped back to the fourth tier because um, of financial constraints, which were caused by a very good thing: our brand new stadium, which opened yeah. mm-hmm. in November 2020. Um, so this is the uh, uh, overtaking um, Milton Keynes in the league structure was a huge milestone, but the biggest one of all has been returning to Wimbledon. So the fans not only did we start our own team from scratch, but managed to finance, construct and build a stadium on Plough Lane, the same street. Wow. It is 100 yards from the original site. Yeah. So you can see it from the uh, the old site, from the new site. It's As I mentioned, it's apartment blocks, the old site now, just a couple yards down the road, there was a um, a dog track, uh, and they did, mm. they did stock car racing, kind of the English equivalent of NASCAR, but smaller cars in a circle. Um, and... With uh, that, that's that site was demolished and used as a soccer stadium now, which is what we wanted to do back then, back in yeah. in the nineties. <laughs> but it couldn't happen then. But somehow, you know, those powerful businessmen from Norway couldn't make that happen. But somehow, a bunch of fans, <laughs> a bunch of amateurs, could make it happen. Isn't that strange? Isn't yeah, that funny? It's power of people. <laughs> yeah, power of people. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Um, and so, so yeah, that, that that stadium got built, and as I say, took took a little bit of equity from the Don's Trust to do it, but still have seventy five percent control of ownership, and always will have the majority, as I mentioned. And that's another thing I feel proud of, and I I'm, I've helped you know I, a few bucks to to help build the stadium, and I've got my name, and my dad has his name, and my brother has his name on a plaque by the stadium as we helped build it, and it's I just fit you know it's not it's not the Camp Nou, it's not like a grand arena. 
but it's ours. Yeah. And it's yeah, yeah, beautiful yeah. and I love it. I think it's good looking. Yeah, it's a good looking stadium. And yeah. you were just there recently, right? Yeah, so as yeah, the day after Christmas was the last time I went. I don't go as often as I would like to because I don't live in London. But um minor things. I, when I get back, I think that makes it all the more special. Yeah, that's so awesome. So is there is there a ceiling? You know, do you feel constrained by the fan ownership with regards to how how high you can rise or or do you have your sights set on the Premier League again? I think unfortunately there is a ceiling and I think we hit it with League One the third tier. Um just because of the nature of soccer and how basically money by success and that's the same in many walks of life but particularly yeah. true in in the soccer system where there's pro rail um so i, I can't realistically see us rising any higher just because the financial constraints of the model mm-hmm. um and there's been a lot of debate among the fans whether we should drop the model there have been other teams for example like portsmouth became fan-owned and then they dropped the model michael eisner from disney who was a Disney exec, I believe, became involved yeah. when when they got taken over, if memory serves correct. Wow. So there have been other fan-owned teams who've dropped the model to pro- progress, and admittedly, Portsmouth haven't exactly gone yeah. into the Champions League. But uh, Everyone's heard of Portsmouth. <laughs> yeah, I sure. believe they, isn't that a little bit of the German model? I, I think they have like yeah. a 51%. Yeah, 50, 50 plus one, exactly, yeah. So yeah, they, they, one, yeah. they value community, I think, as much as lower league teams in England do as well. So there is hope. Yeah. I'd say so. Because there's some, there's some good teams out there. I think Dortmund is an example of that too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, all but two German clubs, I think, have that model, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. But um, yeah, I think if we were to progress, and I think this conversation will come up again and again as the seasons go by. If we do, if that is the aim, then we need to take on a, a, a rich businessman needs to come in, essentially. But I think, honestly, for most of us, it's not the aim. Yeah. I don't care that we're not in the Premier League. It's not what it's right. about. Right, what yeah. it's about is that we have a team that plays every week and it's ours. I yeah. love that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, because I stopped going to games in protest because I'm a little bit older. So, like, I I had kids and I was like, okay, cool. I, you know, he's, he's going to take the team. It's pretty much said and done. You know, the contract when he even took the team over had just one little line that was like, I will not take the team anywhere unless it's Austin. And it's like, okay, obviously you had this pre-planned yeah. so I you know I stopped showing up but as soon as it got bought and it was back everyone I know was back in the stands and like you know ready to rock I, I will say um, back back there that time I was working with uh, Dirty Tackle which was on Yahoo and we did a lot of anti-Anthony Precourt um, um, media for <laughs> on, on your behalf because I, it, it was crazy following the story at the time from my perspective as well because as you've yeah. said so many parallels with my own experience so many similarities I think it's the closest for, in the American support system that you can get to the Wimbledon story for yeah. sure yeah, yeah I was like looking at your story and our story and I was like that Charlie Day meme where everything was connecting and I was like <laughs> well that's like that that's like that and I was like had a yeah. cigarette in my mouth and everyone's like geez Ben yeah. calm down I'm like I don't think you understand how cool this is uh, I did want to shout, and I want you to just speak real quick to uh, so us as you know, crew fans and the crew nation. Like, you can give money to the Don's Trust and be part of this team, correct? Like, mm-hmm. you know, I know I was able to do that, and I also like still have a jersey out there that I bought three months ago. So, oh, you, awesome. I mean, you, yeah, and a and a scarf, and actually, the jerseys are only like forty nine euros or something like that. So, mm-hmm. uh, can you kind of talk about like how? how we can like invest in Wimbledon and be part of it. Cause I think that's sweet. Yeah, absolutely. You can find the Don's trust and uh, accepting investment. Um, there've been a few, there were a few rounds of investment for the stadium um, where that was public as well. And there, there was even some benefits of like interest rates. If, if you wanted to take them, you could, yeah. you could get a return on them as well. Um, and I believe that project is still open, basically a share ownership thing. Um, and it's, it's like my shares in my club, they're not going to, I'm never going to sell them. They're going to get passed on, and they're not. I don't think they're going to materially increase in value. It's, it's more um, symbolic, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Any way that any, if anyone is inclined to help the club, uh, I would love them to do so. One good way, by the way, is those jerseys because we've got the Hummel jerseys at the moment, mm-hmm. and my opinion, our away jersey, which is blue and gold, confusingly because we play in blue and yellow. I think it's the best jersey we've we've ever had. It is a beautiful jersey. That's the one I bought. There you go. Thank you. Thank you for it doing it. It is so. sharp. It's great, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. I love it. I th- it's my yeah. favorite ever Wimbledon shirt. Um, so take a look, listener, if you are inclined, and that <laughs> obviously that helps us very much as well. Then you get some material yeah, awesome. from it too, and you look sharp, yeah. right? Exactly. Yeah. And people, uh, when you play rec league, they're like, "Oh, what's that team? Mm, nice." Well, Ryan, we appreciate you making time for us. Um, 
before we let you go, I want to make sure we can uh, plug anything else you have going on. You mentioned uh, Total Soccer Show. Um, anything else we can we can get out there for you before we sign off? Yeah, just just the two things for me. Uh, Total Soccer Show is where you can find me and my friends rambling on about soccer uh, five days a week. And yeah, yeah go, go and buy your Wimbledon shirt. And uh, ASWimbledon.co.uk. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing the story. It's uh, I, I was kind of familiar with it just from reading what what Ben sent over, but um, it's crazy. Uh, mm. And and glad to hear that everyone's on their feet there. So congratulations. Yeah, man. No, thank you. It's, it's been a it's been a pleasure chatting with you guys and sharing the story as well. And thank you for bringing it to everybody's attention as well. Because, I mean, how, how just out of curiosity, how did you even find out about it? Was it was it through like? John Green or no TSS? Okay, yeah, I think it actually was. Yeah, it had to have been. Yeah, yeah, I'll probably your soccer one hundred and one. Ben and I probably listen. I haven't missed an episode of TSS in four years, oh, like wow. since Daryl was around. Even I haven't done that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I have. I haven't done that. I've listened to <laughs> quite a few, but that's impressive. I don't. Yeah, Tracy and I, I don't think. I think it's been. I think it's more than that because I remember the stadium being built and I was following mm-hmm. it then. Yeah, when when you came on and started making all the references. Yeah, I was just like, oh, does TSS have any jerseys uh, that Tracy could buy? Uh, we're, we're, <laughs> I have the hello and welcome scarves. Yeah, <laughs> we've got those. Yeah. We're talking about yeah. doing some merch. Uh, more on that shortly, yeah. I think. But uh, okay. nice. this is this has been awesome. I'll tell you what, though, I'm, I've never been to um, to Columbus. So I'd, next time I come, I'd love to mm. maybe come and have a beer with you guys as well. For sure. Oh, yeah, we would take you out. Yeah, we'd love it. Absolutely. Yeah, the new stadium is sharp. Yeah. It's cool. It looks awesome. It looks great. Awesome. Yeah, happy to have you anytime. Um, and I guess we would typically say go crew, but I think we can say... Come on, you dons. C-O-Y-D. <laughs> come on, you dons. All right. Come, come on, you dons. Thanks, Ryan. The Wombles. There we go. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone, for joining the club. We hope you'll listen next week and every week, even in the off season, to celebrate or commiserate. We'll save you a seat. If you like this podcast, please give us five stars and subscribe. You can email us at upper90clubpod at gmail.com. That's upper90clubpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at upper90clubpod. Go crew! Yeah, I reached out and I was like, he's not going to respond. And you're like, I'll do it. I was like, now I'm having a panic attack. Like, <laughs> now we got to be professional. Yeah. Um, do I send my invoice to you, by the way? Yes. It's at no reply <laughs> at apple.com at me.com. Excellent. Your family.